Welcome to the People Analytics and Future Work Podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, this is Al Adamson, founder and executive director of the Talent Strategy Institute. And I'm here today with Guru Sethupathy of Capital One. Guru, are you there? Hi, Al. Good morning. Hey, thanks for joining me today. Super excited that you're, you're going to share your ideas. I mean, you have a unique background. And if you would, if you can introduce uh, the audience to yourself and you know how you landed in this space called People Analytics. Yeah, Al, thanks. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for uh, the introduction and uh, happy to chat with you today. I've enjoyed all of uh, the times I've interacted um, about this topic and about this space that you're kind of a, a veteran in and, uh, and I'm still learning, but hopefully I'm bringing a, a unique perspective and uh, into this uh, people analytics space as well. Um, as you said, I've uh, kind of been in different roles and um, before joining Capital One, but you know, over the last 10 years or so, I've been really passionate and interested in human capital. That's really become kind of the space that uh, I've really kind of gone deep on. Um, but it started out when I was actually in academia, when I was uh, doing research on labor markets and um, trying to understand how uh, globalization and technological change was affecting uh, human capital, right? affecting workers. And that's a pretty kind of salient and uh, relevant topic for today's economic discourse in general, uh, right? Um, in terms of kind of manufacturing job loss and the future of work and so on. Um, and one of the, you know, as I was doing that research, one of the things that really caught my attention is when you kind of uh, look at the micro level and look at the effect on skills, uh, there's some things that kind of uh, seem jarring. And, and one of them to me was this term that I like to call the half-life of skills. Uh, which is kind of, you know, if you look at the skills that any individual has or even a group of people have in an economy, how long before some fraction, half of those skills become obsolete? And um, and and I like that phrasing to, to argue that the, the rate at which skill needs in the economy are changing is getting faster and faster. So I like to say the half-life of skills is falling over time. And, you know, in, in doing that research, uh, I realized the implications that it had. I started thinking about, hey, if that were the case, what kind of institutional framework um, would we need to enable talent to really thrive? Because if those, have, if those skills are eroding, then how are we, you know, how are we building up the other skills or building new skills in people? Like, how are we creating this lifelong learning environment? And if you look at kind of higher education institutions or training institutions, if you look at companies the, their mindset around talent is kind of an old 19th century, 20th century mindset of, hey, you learn some skills and then you go work and then and then that's it, right? And yeah. um, and even in terms of kind of how HR practices are done in companies, it's a very it, it's one of the few areas that hasn't really been disrupted. If you think about almost all those functions from finance to risk to ops um, to consumer and brand analytics. Um, they've all been kind of redone in the last few decades, especially with the uh, introduction of big data and analytics and machine learning and so on and so forth. Whereas I feel HR is one of those functions in those places that's just kind of stayed the same. It's on a bit of an island and it's kind of stayed the same. So if you think about kind of both how companies think about talent, if you think about how training providers and higher ed think about talent, um, I was concerned that they're not thinking about it in a way where the half-life of skills is diminishing. Right. And so um, that's what prompted me to say, hey, I want to leave academia and go do something about it. And uh, left academia and went to McKinsey and Company for, for a bunch of years. And they really sought to kind of think through how I'd want to 
get into the academic space, right? How I'd want to go back to academia, but in a different mindset of like, how am I changing how people think about it? How are people, how are company, um, you know, academic institutions revising their strategy about their role in, in the development of human capital? But as I was doing that, I had another realization, which seems quite obvious in hindsight, which is that most skill accumulation happens actually on the job, right? Yep. The, the skills that we learn in, 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 in you know, uh, K through 12 and, and uh, you know, primary and secondary education, all very valuable. But most of kind of when you think about the actual labor market, you think about how we're, uh, most workers go earn a living, it's the skills that they pick up on the job. And so if you really want to transform the nature of um, skill accumulation in a world of rapid skill depreciation, you have to think about that corporate context. And so for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that academia is just a bit more inert in a lot of ways and harder to change, said, but also this kind of impact of corporations in the um, economy-wide development of, of talent um, I said, hey, let me go. Let me go take a stab at this and see how we can learn more about how that actually works in the company. Um, I'll say one more thing, uh, which is, you know, if you think about how much manpower and brain, person power and brain power, it goes into understanding these various aspects of skill accumulation. There are so many people who have met, who are investing their time and energy thinking about how to improve our educational systems, which is absolutely yeah. wonderful. But there's so few people who are um, you know, invested in how do we transform our skill accumulation and learning processes in a corporate setting. And given that that's so important, to me at this point in time, that's a higher leverage area of opportunity. And, and that's why I'm so excited about this space of people analytics. Well, yeah, your excitement uh, is contagious uh, because I, I couldn't agree more, not only on the skill front, uh, but in terms of measuring an individual's capacity and the number of skills that they can acquire over a certain period of time. And there's, an, there's also an implication that organizations are, are good at actually translating the work that needs to be done into the right. required <laughs> skills. So right. can you speak to, you know, in your ideal future state, given where you sit right now, is it, uh, is it that organizations, and of course it depends on, different job uh, categories mm -hmm. and engineers going to be different than you know, mm -hmm. a, a line worker in a, in, mm -hmm. a, in a manufacturing facility. But mm -hmm. is it the case where there's more micro learning going on and there's better systems to capture these learning events so people can then see their own skill uh, development evolve over time and similarly the organization can search and find those people with the relevant skills? You know, what does the mm -hmm. ideal future state uh, look like to you as you sit here at the end of 2017? Yeah, yeah, great question. Let me paint maybe a dream scenario, um, and then caveat that by saying this is this is really a dream, right? Like, I, I, <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be hard, right? And and, and we may yeah. not fully ever get there, but um, we can hope, right? And we can dream about it. Um, I, I think I'd break it into two buckets. I think your question is a really good one, and I and I'd start by breaking it into two buckets. I think one is around information. Right? Like, what is the information ecosystem that we need to make the right decisions? And the second is around a bit of what you're getting about. What does the training ecosystem look like? So let me um, take those bit by bit. What I mean by information ecosystem is, is something you hit on a little bit. It's, first of all, companies being able to understand what their business strategy looks like, right? Where are the energy, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the roles? 
and the skills that they will need, right? And that's an informational thing. You actually have to have a sense of the external market, the external set of conditions that allow you to then develop your business strategy that then allow you to say, okay, because of that business strategy, I need data scientists or I need machine learning specialists or I need product developers, right? And that very interlinked, uh, that linkage between business strategy and talent strategy doesn't even happen in a lot of firms today, right? And I think that itself is a huge innovation. Yep. So that's kind of step, step one. Then step two is going down deeper to saying, okay, I know I need these set of roles, but then what does that mean from a skill and behavioral standpoint, right? Uh, and what I mean by that is you could say, okay, uh, I want a data scientist. But a data scientist probably might mean something slightly different to you than it does to me, right, in terms of what those skills are. Um, yeah. Or data analyst. Data analyst, that's a very generic term. That could mean a lot of things, right? <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> so I, I almost wonder, I, I have a hope and a vision that there will be a kind of an external provider someday that will be able to make these linkages across companies. It's almost like a public good, right, mm -hmm. where in a common language that we all have, where any role means these set of five skills, right? And so we can all uh, um, kind of land on that because right now, if, when I'm hiring someone who says that they've been a data analyst before, I have no idea if that matches up with what I'm looking for today, right? So exactly. if we can get, get to a place where we have a common language and a common set of definitions around job roles and skills, that would be an incredible achievement, I think, to simplify uh, the process of kind of hiring and uh, assessing people. Right. And the ONET, um, the, the ONET, which is under the BLS, is kind of is going there. Right. That's that they've, they've attempted to do this. But at the rate at which things are changing, they don't update as quickly. And we need much more kind of sophisticated and constant kind of updating of this common dictionary, I would say. Right. Um, yep. That's the second step. The third one. And this is something I've just started talking to recently because I'm actually doing this exercise at, at Capital One is I think that there's actually one more lever beyond skills, Alan, it's around behaviors. What I mean yep. by that is I could take a data analyst and I could take a data scientist, and they both need to probably be familiar with certain tools and certain skills, right? Um, but it might differ in the level to which they need to get to. So a data analyst may need to know regression analysis. Right, but they may just need to know how to interpret a regression analysis. A data scientist may need to know kind of very deeply the underpinnings of regression methodology, logit regression, various other regressions, non-parametric estimations, etc. Right. So if I just look at it from a skill standpoint, I'll say, oh, they both need to know regression analysis and statistical techniques, but they need to know it at such different levels. So the behaviors they exhibit on that skill set are quite different. Right. Sure. And so if you only stay at the skills level, which is even hard to do, you, you kind of miss a lot of the richness about what a particular role means. means. And so we're actually playing around with this um, at Capital One is trying to take it one level deeper to see, hey, can we get down to the behavioral level to really parse out what level of um, knowledge or capabilities they need in a particular skill. Um, and so if I think about it that way, think about job roles, skills, and then behaviors, that's the kind of the the hierarchy, I'm thinking of, of having uh, this broken down and then being able to have a common language dictionary that we can have around this will then allow us to, you know, basically um, as a framework to discuss the richness of, of, of human talent. So, so yeah. this is kind of what I mean by the, the information side, but let me pause there. I feel like you're going to jump in. 
Yeah, no, no, it's uh, as you're sharing, I am drawn to, to the fact that you're creating uh, distinctions, uh, distinctions that uh, formerly have not been made, at least in, in many organizations. And these distinctions are, are, are valuable and uh, arguably necessary. I would say they're necessary. And I often cite a Chinese proverb, the beginning of wisdom is calling things by their right names. And that mm. you know, <laughs> means that, hey, you know, if we're going to, you'll find someone who's going to be a good fit for this role. We actually need to define exactly what fit means and go to your point to the behavioral level and understand the distinctions uh, of what a data scientist or data analyst is. So are you creating a, a language uh, that you're in turn socializing internally for, so hiring managers can do a better job at crafting job descriptions and recruiters, you know, being able to assess talent better or you know, how is that being brought to life um, in your vision? Yeah, good, good question. I love that proverb, by the way. I think that's a perfect, uh, you know, description of what we're trying to solve in the skills space, right? Is the, the kind of the numeracy of, of definitions and terminology and it's just, I think, confusing a lot and and making it harder to think about uh, talent. So I love that proverb. In in our, in at Capital One, I mean, what I'm doing first is I'm kind of starting by experimenting with my team, right? Um, we have about, you know, 40, 40 uh, or so people and, you know, that, you know, a lot of data scientists, data analysts, and then business analysts, uh, kind of more strategic uh, consultant types. And these are kind of, you know, three or four different approximate types of roles. And we're actually going through this framework that I laid out to kind of describe each of these roles and what the future state of the those job families in those um, and skills and behaviors look like, right? So we're going through that framework right now. And then the idea is to then take that framework and that common language and then say, okay, how do we then go about now start measuring this, right? And this is where it'll go into the second part of what I was going to describe is once you have this framework, once I know what I want to measure, right? That's what this terminology is for and the definitions are for. Then I can think about how do I go actually measure it, right? Yep. Um, and so, at this point, I'm just working with my team because I just want, at, there's so much trial and error involved in this process, right? And I want to experiment. I want to see what works, what doesn't work. I want to start thinking about measurements. And then once we get to a place where we can demonstrate something valuable, then I'll take it to the broader Capital One audience and say, hey, guys, this is how, you know, we played around with this. We rolled around uh, in this methodology for a bit. This is where we ended up. I think this could be helpful for your organizations. Let's go try, uh, try and pilot this out in other various organizations. So I want to start small and experiment because I don't know if we'll end up with the perfect answer right off the bat. Um, so that's, yeah. where, that's where I would say we are on that. Got it. And if you want to take this in a different direction, by all means, uh, you know, please do so. But there's something that I'm drawn to that I think our, our listeners will, will be interested in as well. And that's the fact that you know, training or, or learning investments uh, mm -hmm. are – you know, mm -hmm. still, uh, you know, a big part mm -hmm. of you know, the budget, uh, both inside of mm HR -hmm. and out. And oftentimes that data isn't captured well. Uh, the investment yep. is a big question mark. You know, was it worth yeah. it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. know, was it in-person training, online training? You know, what is your uh, view on how training investments can best be utilized to appreciate this half-life of skills? Is it getting smaller, this micro-learning idea or you know, on-demand learning, what does it look like to you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and Al, we, you know, well, at McKinsey, uh, spend some time with customers, corporate customers on this exact topic of like, you know, 
most so many companies spend a lot of dollars on internal L and D, right? Yep. Uh, yep. And whether they have their own programs, you know, the bigger companies have their own programs. The smaller ones tend to kind of outsource off-the-shelf tools. Um, I don't know if you knew this. I was shocked to find that um, the total spend on L and D in companies is, uh, I think, over two hundred million, uh, two hundred billion dollars annually in the U.S., which is, um, which is more than half of the entire um, host, um, you know, secondary spend in education in the U.S. Right. So if you think about all the wow. community colleges, universities, public, state colleges, private universities, vocational schools, if you think about all of that. Um, that's only double of what companies spend on L&D, right? So this is a big space, and we know so little about how useful it is. Um, yeah. And companies themselves have very little sense. I think there was a McKinsey study on this of like, I can't remember the exact percentages, but something well over 50%, might even be like 70, 80, 90% of companies don't even have a sense of the ROI on these investments, right? Wow. Um, and so there's a huge opportunity there. And, and what I want to do, actually linking the first part, uh, first part of what I was talking about in terms of that framework, what I want to, again, part of my dream is if we can take that framework and then actually build a human capital-based balance sheet, right? Like we have balance sheets, yeah. right? Financial institutions have balance sheets for everything else about their company, all the other assets they have, all the other things that they're investing in. Um, they have income statements, cash flow, so on. And the only place human capital shows up is where it shows up as a, a, a cost in the income statement, right? Yep. And so w when you think about it that way, then all then it makes sense that companies just think about their talent as something to be minimized from a cost standpoint, <laughs> right? Yep. If, exactly. if, if that's the only place you think about it, and you're solving for maximizing profits to your shareholders, well, then labor costs are something to be minimized, and that's a fundamental. Uh, kind of shift in mindset that is reflected in how we measure things, right? So measurement yeah. matters for shifting mindsets. And so imagine we could create a balance sheet around human capital, actually. Yeah. Then yeah. you can start to say, hey, that actually matters from not just a cost standpoint, but an investment standpoint. Sure. And then you can start tying that to your question around L&D training, et cetera, because now I can start measuring those things and seeing how that impacts the items on my human capital balance sheet is it driving up the assets on my human capital drive, uh, balance sheet? If so, how much? And then what is that ROI? And I can start making really thoughtful connections. So that's how the first part of my thinking around kind of the framework and the definitions and the de terminology, that, that information can be translated into a balance sheet. And then that balance sheet can then be connected to all the learning uh, investments that, that I, can, uh, that I, can, that I want to invest in to appreciate my human capital uh, base while parts of it are depreciating just because of technology, right? And so yeah. that's kind of the dream vision that I have. Yeah, and it makes total sense. And yeah, and I 100% agree that it should that uh, balance sheet be adopted, then the mindset would uh, in fact change. And one of the things I can just to hear someone thinking as they're hearing you speak, okay, let's say we have this balance sheet, we understand the investment. That investment we make is highly mobile. In other words, mm -hmm. it can just mm -hmm. up and move tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do I mm -hmm. want to be training my competition and the marketplace? What would you say to someone who you know, has kind of a more scarcity um, mindset? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, so, so that's the interesting uh, 
conundrum, so to speak, right? And uh, we've actually seen that investments in um, in uh, the training and development of the workforce by employers has fallen quite a bit since the 90s on a per employee uh, basis, right? So it, this is, and when, and when companies are asked this, they're off, they often cite the reason you just gave, right? They say, hey, why am I going to invest? Because the world is becoming more mobile. People can leave. They can leave my organization, my firm, and take those investments with them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of theoretically and uh, from an explanation standpoint comforting, but the evidence shows that not to be the case, right? And so mm -hmm. there's, there's a couple of things there. One is this view that that millennials and that generation are just more mobile, right? They just hop from job to job and they're just more mobile. And so um, there, there's that fear or that, that, that concern of why should I invest in people who are gonna move? The data actually doesn't bear that out. So the data actually um, does not show that the next generation are any more willing to kind of jump, skip and hop from job to job than previous generations. So that's yeah. one thing is, you know, if we can actually take that to leaders and I would do the same at Capital One, but you know, if we can take that to our leaders, our CHROs and others and say, look, this is actually um, somewhat unfounded, that should hopefully start the conversation around, hey, why, well, why is it the case that we thought that and how can we change um, our perception of that fact? The second thing I would say is, there's a flip side that people often don't uh, think about. They're worried about you know, people leaving, and that, at some point that's going to happen. I'm not gonna say that's, that's never going to happen, right? There are going to be people who you, know, you invest in who are going to leave, right? But at the same time, what's also been demonstrated from a research standpoint is people whom you invest in are more engaged, more hardworking, more committed, and more productive, right? Yep. When they stay. Yeah. And so you have yeah. to weigh both of these. And I feel like we've gone too far in a direction of just thinking about the bad consequences of people leaving with the investments when there's a ton of positive impact to my organization from those uh, investments as well. And so again, hopefully the measurement and capture of data on this will make that business case of like, this is really, really valuable. Yeah, and uh, Peter Capelli has done some work that you may be familiar with that actually shows that training investments, investing in people uh, through training is actually one of the key uh, drivers of retention of those individuals. Yes. So yeah, I can exactly. totally you'll see that happen. And it, exactly. It, it begs the question uh, to, in, and I see this emerging and I don't know if it's going to be part of uh, the, the future and, and be part of a new normal, uh, but I would contend it is, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is that to this point in the conversation, we've been talking about an organization making investments in the people within its organization, yet mm -hmm. we now have the ability as individuals to learn on our own. And mm -hmm. that is separate. You know, that's, you know, mm -hmm. if I watch a YouTube video on how to fix something, mm -hmm. or if I take mm -hmm. an online class, mm -hmm. it might mm -hmm. not in all likelihood be captured within an organizational LMS or, mm -hmm. or some data mm -hmm. capture mechanism within the organization. So mm -hmm. can or should it be incumbent upon me, um, assuming there's a platform to do so, to publish what I have, uh, what skills I have acquired. And so mm -hmm. it's not only on the employer, it's on the individual to elevate their employability through skill acquisition. Uh, would you advocate f for something of that order or you know, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think there's a couple of thoughts I have there. One is around, um, I, I think hiring for aptitude capabilities, but then also growth mindset is one of the things I would optimize for, right? So exactly what you're saying, people who 
are always thinking about how they can grow, challenge themselves, push themselves outside the kind of linear boxes that they're in um, is something that's going to be incredibly valuable because of this need for constant learning, right? Yep. Um, yep. Now, now what? Uh, so from a and, and also from a, they should they have the all the incentives to do that as well. Like to my previous point about the half of half life of skills falling, the people that are going to be most successful in this new world are people who are constantly um, upgrading their skills, right? So if you think that you can just take your core set of skills, be an all star in that, and then that's it for the rest of your life, I don't think that's going to work anymore. So each individual, we have incentives to constantly kind of upgrade our skills, right? So not only does yep. that benefit us, it also benefits our employers, and there's a mutual kind of win-win there. The, the, yep. the place where that gets tricky is, and this goes maybe a little bit back to your previous question on my, you know, micro skills and learning and micro learning. The thing, it's the thing with learning, and this is again, we're, we, we don't know this well enough yet, and, and this is an area where I want to kind of dig in, but there's really an ecosystem of learning that's quite different in a corporate setting than it is in a school setting, right? In a school mm -hmm. setting, I might by myself can take a course and pick up skills that way right? But mm -hmm. now in a corporate setting, say I go take a course, right? Um, and I learn some skills. If I don't use those skills on the job, it, it quickly deteriorates, right? I lose those skills quite quickly. So how do you align what they're learning with what they're doing on the job? Because that's how something gets reinforced and it sticks. So that's one thing that, that we yep. need to think about. The second thing yep. is there's a, whole eco, there's a whole ecosystem. If I go learn a new skill, but my manager is not aware of that skill set and is still operating in a different framework, then there's going to be friction, right? So there's, there's almost like an awareness in the ecosystem of people I work with that warrants, uh, that, that's needed in order for my skills to be actually useful. Now, let me give an example of that. So one of the things we're doing in Capital One is moving kind of uh, a lot of our uh, product development into an agile framework, right? Mm -hmm. Agile development and agile product development and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, sure. and one of the, uh, a lot, some of the principles in Agile are kind of rapid prototyping, quick feedback and, and learning and improving, et cetera, right? So if I as a engineer kind of go learn these Agile skills, right, um, and then put them into use. Um, and so let's say I take uh, a quick rapid prototype and go show that to my boss. If my boss is operating in an old kind of pro project development waterfall mindset, right, and looks at this tool, which looks kind of crappy. It's not like perfectly done. It, it, it's just a very quick prototype to show that we're going in the right direction. And I go back and give the feedback like that was a very poor product, right? So they're operating in a different mindset than what I just went and learned. And so if you don't have that kind of that connection where the entire ecosystem is on the same page, then the learning that any individual does is going to be um, wasted. Sure. So this is so there's a couple elements of like even if this there's uh, a lot of kind of individuals taking the initiative to go do the the training and learning how does the enterprise augment that first by allowing them to incorporate that in their day-to-day -day work to make it reinforced but also to make sure that the ecosystem they work with in the organization complements the skills they learned to kind of build a better mousetrap so to speak so I think yeah, those I love are it. things where, you know, where, it, where it, again, it, it's not, it, individuals can't do it by themselves and corporations can't do it by themselves. It's got to be a, a joint effort. All right. I well, yeah, love your thinking. Thanks for, the, for that. Now, you've probably got time for one more question, and I'm going to be selfish uh, because mm -hmm. you're an economist. You are adept at connecting the dots and, and systematic thinking. So right now in the people analytics discipline, we've been looking at 
talent uh, as full-time employees, you know, people within the organization. Yet, increasingly, we have this ecosystem of uh, entities that are doing work. So an organization has a strategy. Mm. There's work that needs to be done to execute that strategy. Mm. Uh, mm. Historically, it's largely been done by employees. Now it's being done by contractors, mm -hmm. consultants, outsource providers, uh, increasingly mm -hmm. automation through AI and machine learning and a variety of other tools. So mm -hmm. would you contend that there's going to be this work strategy that has to be uh, created where formerly these disparate disciplines of IT and, and operations and HR and and so forth, there needs to be more of a holistic and procurement, of course, a holistic view of how work is getting done because all these affect one another. I know it's a leading question. I'll own that. Uh, <laughs> but you know, you know, what are your thoughts on this emerging reality? Yeah, I, I think uh, that, that's a really good question. And that's the one that I think um, it, there, there's a lot of innovation that's yet to happen and a lot of change that's yet to happen. There's actually a whole field of economics around the theory of the firm. Like, why do firms exist even? Like, why do organizations exist? And, there, uh, and economists have a bunch of hypotheses. One is around kind of, um, you know, information, right? Like, when you need to hold on to proprietary information and don't want to throw it over the wall to someone externally, you're going to keep that in the, in the boundaries of a firm, right? Uh, another might be just kind of information sharing. If it's easier for me to kind of meet with you and you and you in a networked fashion inside the boundaries of a firm than to have kind of outsourcing relationships, right? Arms link outsourcing relationships. Um, so there's a bunch of, you know, other reasons like that. And so what's going to be really interesting is as technolo technology improves and, and machine learning and automation and these things improve, are they lowering the cost of some of those things, such as information sharing, such as contract mm -hmm. enforcement? And as it lowers those, then you start to see a lot and more of work can be done outside of your organizational boundaries. And that's yep. the real, uh, that's where the rubber is going to hit the road. Like, is the technology we're seeing going to help with that? Or is it going to be, you know, not as helpful with that? And, and you're starting to see that, right? And that's where the gig economy is, 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 is really kind of playing a big role. You're seeing it in spaces where, hey, I, I can really piecemeal this, uh, this piece of work out. And it, it, it doesn't need to be connected to uh, the other work that I'm doing. And I can just go kind of outsource that, grab it, and have it come back. Now, the interesting thing is you're seeing this gig economy more in unskilled type work right? Um, it hasn't really hit the knowledge economy uh, a ton yet. And I think it's because of this fundamental need of when you're working on a project with someone that's more kind of a strategic type project, it's, um, it's you, you, you need someone that you can kind of trust in that re relationship, right? Sure. Um, versus sure. if I just need someone to drive me from point A to point B, I still need to trust them that they're not going to do anything, but it's easier to verify, right? And that's what the Uber model is based on, or that's what the, um, you know, the uh, Upwork model is based on, where it's kind of, uh, you know, low, somewhat lower skill work or easier to define work. And so, therefore, I can trust someone else's, um, you know, reputation on uh, when they evaluated them and they say, hey, Guru is a good driver or Guru is a good coder of Java and he can make these little snippets of code, right? That's easier sure. to judge versus someone who's where it's a very more kind of knowledge-based work, higher skilled work, then that's very difficult to judge. You don't know if that's 
person's going to actually be uh, what you need. And so there, it's easier for you to bring them internally and have them be part of your organization. So I think that's where it gets really tricky is I'm still not sure if all of this technology is going to enable better kind of reputational mechanisms to be able to outsource uh, large bodies of work. And so that's where I think we need to, the jury's still out. Yeah. Well, Guru, I mean, always, always a pleasure to talk with you and explore with you and listen to your ideas and, and see, you know, learn about what you're doing there uh, at Capital One and uh, what your you know, thoughts are about the future. Any final uh, you know, points to share? And you know, I know you're going to be at our conference, People on the Lake's Future of Work, uh, this coming February. Thanks for joining us and, and, and speaking at that. Uh, yeah, any other things that you want to share as we close? No, I mean, I, I would just love to say I always uh, enjoy chatting with you uh, as well, Al. Uh, a pleasure, and you ask such insightful questions. And uh, look forward to the partnership as we kind of all of us in this space kind of a uh, bit of stumbling and bumbling, but um, I think towards an awesome, awesome outcome um, in the future. So excited to be part of this space and uh, working with people like you. Yeah, thanks, Guru. Likewise. And uh, you have a great Thanksgiving. Likewise. Have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll talk soon. All right. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.